healing from trauma as an opportunity, even though it is so goddamn terrifying and it is so fucking hard. And it takes an enormous amount of energy and resources, not just financial. I'm talking personal, energetically, mentally, right? Like you need to be committed to that process. But if we understand and know, and this is kind of what has kept me going, is that not only seeing people come through to that other side and myself as well, but that we are not supposed to stay in survival stress. We are not supposed to remain in traumatic stress. That is not what our physiology is intended to do. We know it's destructive. And so if that's the case, then the whole purpose is to actually find our way out of it. I am very excited about today's interview here with my friend Jennifer Sommerfeld. And um, we're going to talk about an area within the women's health space, we'll call it in general. But it's not just women. It's also the babies. It's also their partners. The mental health space in North America at large, because Jennifer actually practices and lives up in Canada. But let's just say in most Western, let's say developed nations, mental health generally falls to uh, a lower I don't know, rung on the priority ladder. You know, we love to show how heroic we can be. We love to show that our science is good, our interventions are beneficial, that, you know, we have low risks of mom and baby dying. The problem is that many, many women who end up with interventions in childbirth, they maybe even experience a bad outcome, or heck, maybe their doctors save their lives. But the the lack of integration of these stressful experiences, including including even an unmedicated, undisturbed, natural physiologic vaginal birth in the hospital where a person felt that they weren't being spoken to respectfully, they weren't being touched with any sort of compassion, you know, their care team lacked any what we would call bedside manner, it leaves them feeling lost at times it makes it, it leaves them feeling like something is is up something's being held on to by the body one word that is used to describe this is trauma and trauma comes in so many different flavors right and it's not fair to compare traumas but what we have here in a medical system that doesn't prioritize mental health is only it's a very myopic, narrow view of the human experience. It reduces it down to just a bag of skin and bones and organs without taking into account the mental, emotional, and spiritual aspects of what makes you, you. And that's why we need more people like Jennifer Sommerfeld. Jennifer has a master's in counseling psychology. She is a certified counselor in Canada, um, her specialties are maternal mental health and trauma-informed care. She's certified as a trauma recovery counselor, a grief support counselor, a holistic doula. She's done graduate-level um, studies in performance and sports psychology. Um, she studied midwifery, direct entry midwifery, midwifery for eight years. And she's written at least two books. <laughs> I'm saying that because she's such a prolific uh, writer and just so eloquent with uh, her language, her, her body language, her, her gestures. She's just very deliberate, highly intelligent. Her two books are called Midwifery for the School and Healing After Birth. Let me give you the full titles. 
Midwifery for the soul, awaken to your fierce feminine in the depths of darkness and trauma. And then her second book, Healing After Birth, Navigating Your Emotions After a Difficult Childbirth. We need so, so, so much more of this. And so I, I feel very grateful to know Jennifer and to bring her on the show. And and if you recall, if you hadn't listened to episode 113, it's with Tracy Vogel. She's an OB anesthesiologist. That's on my show here. And she is also uh, shifting her energy focused time into the trauma-informed care of women after birth, during their pregnancy, as they approach um, you know, a, a hospital birth or whatever, taking a particular interest in how you felt about your previous birth, your previous C-section, whatever, and trying to help unpack that story, resolve that story, close the circle, so to speak, so you can move on in the healthiest way, again, on the physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual levels. Jennifer Sommerfeld is right there with Tracy. So if you liked that episode, or if this is completely new to you, regardless, I think you're going to get a lot from my conversation here with Jennifer. As always, we can't do this show without any of our sponsors, and we've got five of them. I'm going to make it very brief for you because I think you've probably heard um, about quite a few of these. But we have a new sponsor this time, um, Miss Rosemary Marin. Um, she is the founder of Soul Connections, and Soul Connections offers one-on-one -on -one sessions that can be done virtually or in person that support deep transformation and bonding between mothers and their unborn babies. Rosemary draws on years of training in clinical, transpersonal, and interpersonal hypnotherapy, soul integration, and doula work. And as the founder of Soul Connections, she acts as a guide for women who want to connect with uh, the essence of their babies before conception, while the baby's still in the womb, so that a sacred level of connection becomes the backdrop for pregnancy, birth, and then, of course, let's not forget parenting. She also helps women, I think this is especially um, critical, she also helps women find healing and understanding after the loss of a baby, as well as connecting with the spirits of babies preconception. If you want to learn more about Soul Connections and to schedule your session, visit Rosemary at rosemarymarin.com. That's R-O-S-E-M-A-R-Y-M-E-R-A-N.com. This episode is also brought to you by Fullwell Fertility. Easily the best prenatal vitamin on the market. I know that my audience is very, very happy with the process of not just ordering and receiving it, but taking these vitamins. It just feels good. They all feel very, very secure in their decision. They continue to come back and spread the word, and it's because there just isn't a company like Fullwell. You can almost feel the passion that was put into these products. It was developed by Ayla Barmer, who is a registered dietitian. She was unhappy with not being able to see behind the scenes of the quality control process in the prenatal vitamin industry. So she got into the lab. She actually put on her chemistry pants and went to work and created the best prenatal vitamin on the market. The reason it's the best is because you're getting all of the nutrition that you, acu that you actually need in your prenatal vitamin. It's an insurance policy for an already healthy lifestyle, but most of the vitamins out there are a really crappy insurance policy. They don't have the right nutrients in the right proportions. They're not bioavailable. You know, there's more synthetic ingredients than there are actually uh, natural forms of ingredients like folate versus the synthetic folic acid. I can't recommend this, guys, enough. I'm so uh, happy that they have continued to support the show. Go to fullwellfertility.com. Just spell it out. And um, if you use code um, BELOVED, uh, let me make sure. Is it BELOVED or is it BELOVED10? 
Beloved 10, excuse me, Beloved 10 to save 10%. And while you're there, they have men's virility vitamins, a Nourish Nerves tonic, and they have a very high quality fish oil, way better than the junk that you're getting at Costco. So go to Full Well, support them. Um, they're doing good work, and I, have, uh, I, I am so stoked to have them as sponsors of the show. This episode is also brought to you by BirthFit. Um, by now, I think you uh, actually, yeah, it was just last week. Lindsay Matthews Cantu, the founder of BirthFit, was on the show. You can hear everything about their approach. And we're going to have to do a part two because she is a walking encyclopedia of knowledge around, um, let's say, pregnancy and postpartum specific lifestyle programming. She has a long pedigree of crossfit and weightlifting and and aerobic style training she and her team of coaches will customize your exercise plan so that you're exercising safely but at the right intensity at the right time of your cycle or if you're pregnant the right phase of your pregnancy as well as into the postpartum period and so uh, all of the information that you need to know uh, about BirthFit, apart from the interview that just was released last week with founder Lindsay, can be found at birthfit.com. And as a, a special gift for the audience here, BirthFit has an online community created by women for women. In fact, there are no men in the group. And anytime that there is a man in the group, it's because they were invited to speak as an expert to uh, in webinar style to the whole group. And um, I was invited recently, and I felt very, very honored to have been uh, on the stage there. It makes me very nervous sometimes because they are such experts in what they do. And, the, and Lindsay brings such an, an open heart and open mind to meet clients where they're at. So as a special gift, they're gonna, um, Lindsay has offered one month free in their B community. It's all available at birthfit.com. Just use code BELOVED to score your free month. Um, thank you, BirthFit, for continuing to support the Holistic Obituary Podcast. Next up is, um, let's see, I got to talk about, oh yeah, my two favorites, Organifi, Organifi. So I know the owner of Organifi as a, as a dear friend, and he and his partner um, welcomed me to their house, and I got to see how the owner of the most responsible, cleanest nutritional supplement product lineup actually lives his life and this guy lives it in the way that he advertises it through his incredible products they've got their green juice their red juice their gold latte their cacao harmony blend which is specific for women's health in order to uh, regulate your hormones and, and adapt to your environment um, in a more harmonized way I love this brand because everything's non-gmo everything is usda organic everything is glyphosate residue free through and through, this is one of the only nutritional supplement products, if you want to call it, that that I will put into my my body, into my friends' families, my clients' bodies. So if you want to try out Organifi, go to Organifi.com slash Beloved or use code Beloved and you'll save 20%. I'd get some of the green, some of the red, some of their gold latte. If you're a woman listening, use the Cacao Harmony Blend. Um, they've got an immune boosting, energy supporting. I mean, they've got it all. Just head to Organifi.com and check these guys out. I'm really, really proud of what Drew has built and very, very honored to have them as um, supporting the show. And then last but not least is Bioptimizers. I love Bioptimizers um, Sleep Breakthrough. Uh, on the package, it said, you know, use two to four scoops in a glass of water. And I took four scoops and it knocked me right out. So what I recommend to my clients is buy their sleep breakthrough. It has a combination of amino acids, um, L-tryptophan. It's got uh, 
um, some medicinal herbs. It's got some functional mushrooms. It's all kind of blended in there together in order to give you the most restful sleep and um, the most restful sleep and, and not like sedated sleep. You wake up in the morning feeling refreshed, feeling ready to go in the morning. So, and last but not least is Bioptimizers. Um, Bioptimizers is really, really special. They have a, a combination of products. They're all made by a guy who, who takes his health very seriously and would never put anything out of the market that he didn't fully trust himself. I've met multiple employees that work with him, and they all are on a regimen of Bioptimizers supplements. They're all doing good, feeling good. Some of them are my clients. And uh, it's just a testament to the quality of these products. One product that I think is very relevant for you right now is magnesium. If you're pregnant, you are naturally going to be in a state of relative deficiency in magnesium. Magne magnesium is required for nearly every cellular process um, that's going on in the body. It's important for adequate red blood cell um, production. It's relevant for blood pressure management, the, the health of your cardiopulmonary systems. Magnesium is necessary in pregnancy. Take two capsules per night before bed, and it'll actually also help you sleep a little bit. So um, if you want to try, oh, and you know, there's another really big thing nobody talks about. If you have a history of hypertension before pregnancy, or you have a history of um, having gestational hypertension or preeclampsia in a previous pregnancy, taking magnesium is actually going to help you prolong your pregnancy so that you don't have a progression of your underlying condition. Um, magnesium is really, really critical, guys, and most of us are deficient in or out of pregnancy. So go to um, bioptimizers.com slash holistic OBGYN, or just go to the checkout, use code BELOVED, and you'll save 10%. While you're there, get some masszymes, some magnesium, uh, some uh, HCL breakthrough, some P3M. It's a, an incredible probiotic. It's all there at Bioptimizers. All right, without further ado, my dear friend Jennifer Sommerfeld, the Canadian therapist that is doing dare I say God's work in the perinatal mental health space. I think you're going to love this episode. Jennifer, welcome to the Holistic OBGYN podcast. You and I have been friends for some time now, and we haven't been talking on a daily basis as we used to because you and I are both very, very busy in our respective practices. You do something distinctly important and different from what most people in the birth working community do, although you've done some birth work training yourself Maybe give everybody a little information about what your practice is and why. <laughs> Let's start with the term birth trauma. Maybe you mm. can just help to this buzzword that's been floating around and really tell people how it is that you work through birth trauma and how it may manifest in your mm. practice. Yeah, let's start off with a bang. I, uh, right now, currently... Just a um, softball question to get you, get you, you, you <laughs> lubricated. <laughs> I wish I was playing softball again. <laughs> I So currently I run a, a therapy practice called Therapy for Moms here in Canada. We have a team of therapists specializing in perinatal mental health, in particular, really zeroing in on what we would call birth trauma. And I would say my passion around working with moms who've experienced a traumatic birth or a highly challenging or even just very disappointing yeah. birth experience in disappointing. which mm -hmm. their dream experience did not turn out the way that they had hoped it would. And, yeah. um, you know, this really has been a passion of mine since I got initiated in the culture of birth when I was 23, pregnant with my first child, mm. who's, you know, now going to be 23. 
I just did the math. Now I know your age. So now we're even closer. (laughs) (laughs) I said my mid 40s. Yeah. So when I was pregnant with my first, I always like to start my story here because like many moms and fathers and partners, we really are initiated into this club when we're pregnant with our first. And, you know, like many people, I knew nothing about the culture. I knew nothing about medicalized childbirth. I knew nothing about home birth. I, you know, didn't even know what the word doula meant. And, you know, again, we're going 23 years back. Yeah. And so a lot has changed in two decades. I mean, really, the birthing mm-hmm. landscape is completely different now from certainly when I was yeah. a kid, but 20 years back, I, we're, we're talking yeah. what, 2000. So Mm-hmm. The com- home computers were just a thing. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we didn't time. have cell phones and yeah, we yeah. did not have social media, which maybe we can circle back to the yeah. impact that social media is having on what, you know, what we're labeling as birth trauma today. Absolutely. Too. We, we should definitely get into yeah. that. This word has been co-opted by the community. It's this buzzword mm. that attracts a lot of attention, but I don't think too many people understand what we're talking about. So why don't we, yeah. what is birth trauma? Maybe you can start by just highlighting uh, maybe through well, it, some experiences you've had in your practice. Yeah, and, and that's kind of where I'm going. I, I want to frame my definition of it based on my lived experience and understanding of the culture. So if you don't mind, I'll take a moment to just build up to that, Yeah, please. to the answer to that question. So I was introduced to the culture of birth in my pregnancy, and I did that thing that everybody does, which is they start out with what to expect when you're expecting. And and then the second book I received was Spiritual Midwifery. So I had a real juxtaposition in front of me. At that time, I was very much in my masculine. I was an athlete. I was in grad school for sports psychology. So I had a real good grasp on how to prepare for a big day. Yeah, checklist. (laughs) How to work the mind to get it ready for peak performance. So I looked at birth through the lens of peak performance back then, and I peak performed. <laughs> I set I set everything up based on you know the limited amount of info I had, and I had a really positive experience with my first birth. And quite radical, you know, eight months pregnant, I fired my obstetrician and I hired my midwife. And the story goes, I paid for it by selling my motorcycle. So. What kind of motorcycle did you have? I had a 1982 or 9 Honda Nighthawk. Oh, so you actually had like a real motorcycle, not like a crotch rocket. Yeah, I rode a motorcycle wow. for six cool. years. Not that crotch rockets yeah. are, are not real motorcycles. They go fast. They go vroom, vroom. I had a classic. You had I like, like a classic. chromed out Honda. Yeah, sweet. <laughs> yeah, and I miss it. Still, I'm still waiting. Now I'm, I'm scared. I'm like, how do my parents let me ride a motorcycle? Yeah, I, I have a Harley downstairs in, in the warm garage right now. And uh, every time I'm out there, I'm like, could be my last ride. You just never know. Yeah. I'm a good rider, but you, mm-hmm. with everybody on their phones, checking their TikToks and stuff. Just never oh my know. God. Can't even imagine. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. So the, the story goes, again, I'm trying to make this Cole's notes. So, so because of that initiation and because I had what I consider to be a peak experience, of course, I was enthralled and curious about why did I have the experience that I had and how could I support other mm-hmm. moms and moms-to-be to have a similar experience? And, and why is there so much talk out there about the fear of birth? So, you know, this 23 years ago. Pregnant very soon after my first. So during my second pregnancy, I um, started to read, get my 10,000 hours in. You know, this was all of a sudden you're consuming every book on the market. I was a real birth junkie, you know, quote unquote. And there were a few books that really shaped 
how I define birth trauma and why I'm passionate about it. And so one of them was, do you remember Susan Arms or Suzanne Arms? Yeah. Immaculate Deception? I have her book somewhere in mm-hmm. my giant pile of books that I haven't yeah. consumed completely. But <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that one. And I think it's Grantly Dick Reed's, you know, Childbirth Without Fear, I think is his stuff. And um, Dick Reed, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's Grantly Dick Reed. And then Frederick Leboyer's Birth Without Violence. So those at that time, really shaped, uh, you know, of course, there's all the other supportive ones out there, but that really hit me in that, why is birth violent? And why is there harm in childbirth? And how can we mitigate this? And how can we reduce the risk of that? And, you know, that kind of opened up a portal, you might say, a passion And of course, like many, I thought, well, if I become a midwife, then I can save everybody from having a, you know, traumatic birth experience. But back then we didn't call it trauma. We just called it either obstetrical violence or we called it, that's really what we called it. (laughs) Obstetrical violence. Yeah. And and just to pause real quickly, because when Mm -hmm. people hear words like violence, they may even hear obstetric rape. I mean, there's words like this that are very charged, very triggering for a lot of people, especially Mm -hmm. if they've had some sexual trauma outside of pregnancy. Mm -hmm. But we are very much talking about violence. You know, when a person doesn't get consent to shove their hand where it doesn't belong, and the partner perhaps is is encouraged to hold the leg back, hold them down, that type of thing. Like we are talking mm-hmm. about a violent act. And mm-hmm. I know that we've been normalized. It's been totally normalized. That's how I was taught in residency. Not because these are bad people that want to violate other people, but this is mm-hmm. the tradition that is passed down. And very much what happens in hospitals, I think, even if you have a, uh, a healthy mom, healthy baby, whatever, there's mm-hmm. these little things, these little things that happen throughout the birth experience, especially in the hospital, but it can happen at home as well, that mm-hmm. feel Correct. like violations to a person's bodily autonomy. So we have to open our minds up to the possibility of what we may be doing wrong if we're going to get anywhere in this conversation as a society. So I just wanted to throw that in there for people that are like, what do you mean violence? Like, yes, we're actually talking about things that are experienced as violence and stored in the Correct. body as violent acts. And harmful. So yeah. we would call those microaggressions, right? In other circles, mm-hmm. we would call those microaggressions. But we, you know, back then we didn't really bring languaging into that culture. It was normalized. It was expected. And only these, you know, radicals who were starting mm-hmm. to question industrialized childbirth and some of the impact that it, that their procedures and protocols were having on the mom specifically, but also on the witnessing partner, yeah, they were, of course, edged out, right? There wasn't a lot of conversation going on. So it was very siloed. Yeah. And But that curiosity and that passion that I had, which was, you know, what can we be doing to eliminate harm in childbirth when we could be having these experiences that are deeply transformative, that are very empowering, that are altered states that, you know, our peak performances, right? Like that we, at that time, I realized that, you know, we had completely stripped the birthing experience from the sacred act of what it is. And I didn't have that language then either. So circle back to your question, what is birth trauma? Uh, I mean, first of all, I would recommend that before we even start this conversation, when you post this 
let's just give like a reverent pause to the, not only the charge or triggering aspect of talking about some of these experiences that moms can go through, but I've learned that when I talk about trauma, I have to approach it with a lot of care mm. and consideration and slow slowness. Mm -hmm. Mm. Initially, I used to get really excited to talk about it because I'd be in my mind. And as an intellect and an academic, it's like you want to talk about these things. But what I learned is that on a very deep level, it can be very activating. Yeah. And if we want to foster the opportunity for healing individually and collectively, I think we need to approach this with a little bit more regard. So that's always my caveat. Mm. I think that's a good caveat. Yeah. Yeah. There are a number of people that are starting to do this work. And interestingly, from the academic world, it's actually starting to become something that is a little bit more uh, acceptable to talk about. You know, it, it wasn't when I was in residency, nobody was talking about birth trauma. It, it mm -hmm. was you don't even use that word in, in a conference. But now there are people like Dr. Tracy Vogel at a, at a West Penn Hospital in Pittsburgh, my hometown, who she's been on the show. She's coming back on the show. She has a practice very similar to this. She's an anesthesiologist, though, and was observing these things from behind the curtain, so to speak, as a, mm. as the, you know, she does epidural. She's an OB anesthesiologist. She specializes mm. in the in maternity care. And she has started to observe these things as well. And like you said, there's not a, a single lexicon that really uh, is appropriate for every person. In some cases, it might be a very horrific birth experience otherwise it might seem like mm -hmm. that was a totally great birth mm -hmm. but something just didn't feel right and so tracy through her work dr vogel mm -hmm. has through conversation has unpacked that man these are really really tender things to speak about mm -hmm. so much so that it almost doesn't even lend itself to be talking about it in an academic conference which mm -hmm. is so sterile and so what are the metric? How do we, what, what survey do we do? Some of this just comes through like mm -hmm. letting people tell their story. And sometimes that's mm -hmm. therapy alone. So mm -hmm. I'm very, very grateful that you did that pause because we're very hard charged, hard nosed people in, in medicine and in healthcare. <laughs> and this is not an intellectual, we can't intellectualize our way out of this. This is something that has to actually be felt. We have to be willing to sit in the fire with a person to mm -hmm. really understand what their experience was. And that might take your entire day because now you are processing that trauma mm -hmm. sort of on their behalf when you really sit and listen mm -hmm. to a story, which can't be done in a seven-minute OB visit. Um, no. You start to really learn, man, this is, this is going to be hard to unpack. This is, there's the ripple effect of this is really, really, um, mm -hmm. it's really, really tricky. So anyways, continue. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. So many things I want to jump in on there, but I want to finish the definition. So, you know, so how I've come to understand what is birth trauma is multifaceted. So you want to take the experience itself, right? So the event and let's say the DSM definition of what is trauma, the event itself has to have been horrifying, terrifying, or somehow have risked that person's total sense of safety and survival. Yeah. Additional to that is how the person made sense out of the event. So the psychology of it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So we have the physiological nervous system response 
to having experienced something that might have induced terror and horror, and there was no way out. So that's also the key, right? And look at the birth. Yeah. You know, look at birthing. Like, ultimately, the way out often ends up resulting in an instrumental or cesarean birth, right? Or the delivery of your baby. Right, right. It's the way out. Said that the next layer is how they made sense out of it. So this was a really key point that I had to to really sit with when I was starting to work with trauma. And don't ask me why I thought it was a good idea to work with trauma. <laughs> um, that's another story. But how each individual person's psyche internalizes and makes sense out of what happened has a huge impact on whether or not that traumatic experience stays stuck in their system or completes the stress response. Hmm. Following? Yeah. Yeah. I think the first thing that comes to mind is that virtually anything can result in trauma if it's not integrated well. Even a totally normal, natural, unmedicated, uncomplicated home birth can result in trauma, which, you know, through the work of like uh, Gabor Mate, Mark Willin, these, you know, mm -hmm. Body Keeps the Score, these sort mm -hmm. of hit best-selling books, we have more work to do, but I, I need to impress again mm -hmm. that what we're talking about here is not what terrible things happened to you. It's how did you integrate that thing that happened to you, whether or not we and objectively can say it's terrible or not. Correct. Yeah, we can't objectively assume that just because of somebody's experience that that experience would have been coded as trauma is yeah. kind of how I look at it. Yeah, I love that. So yes, I, I have worked with moms who had spontaneous, instinctive, physiological birthing experiences, and they experienced that as having been traumatic. So that was a real humbling experience for me to drop all of my own biases that one kind of event is going to induce trauma, whereas the other one wouldn't. Mm. So again, the psychology, the way in which the mind has made sense out of that experience is of equal value right. to the event itself. And so taking that into consideration, I really started to think about, okay, so looking at all the forefathers and the foremothers of the, you know, the, the trauma movement, movement, let's call it traumatology or, you know, <laughs> where it's, you know, it's all bringing us back to the soma. It's bringing us back to the body. It's talking a lot about how the cells encode and hold on to this. And, and they're all providing us with a map to maybe alleviate the suffering that trauma causes. So I had to really contemplate, you know, it's one thing to identify that a mom's experience of birth has resulted in what I would call stuck traumatic material and is therefore impacting the way in which she's not only thinking about that experience, but the way in which she's relating to her environment currently and therefore also impacting the expression of certain symptoms. So we can come back to that. Mm. So I had to think about, well, what's really going on here and how do we actually heal, right? How do we heal from these experiences? So one of the things that Dan Siegel always talks about is that trauma disrupts coherence, right? We, we move into a dysregulated incoherent state. It also disrupts the story. So we get trapped in the peak moment, 
that the system encodes as having been traumatic. And we relive that peak moment. Mm-hmm. So there's no beginning, middle, and end. And so what we're trying to do is we're trying to facilitate the release of that trapped material that gets trapped, I say, in these four systems of knowing. So it gets trapped in your body system, your nervous system. It gets trapped in your heart system, your emotional system. It gets trapped in your mind system, your cognitive system. And it gets trapped in your spiritual system or the transpersonal. Mm. So what we're trying to do therapeutically through taking all of that into consideration and wanting to facilitate an opportunity for healing, which would be to be able to complete that story. So there's a beginning, middle, and an end, and that the story is coherent and that the system moves back into a state of coherence and alignment. So I think we can philosophize and intellectualize all day You know, people Mm -hmm. read books and then they say they understand this. But I'm curious, one thing I wanted to make sure that I emphasized, you said something really important a few minutes ago, which was that when you had your own birth, you had this beautiful experience, this transformational experience. You walked through the portal and you were were stronger, better, more embodied than when you started. A lot of women don't have that experience through this sacred rite of passage, as I always call it. Michelle O'Dont, who was not an OBGYN, but a general surgeon, did his, you know, was at the peak of his career in the 70s and 80s in, in Paris. And he's written quite a bit about more, I don't even want to use the word esoteric, but he's, he's definitely a philosopher first and foremost. And he also happened to be a surgeon that did a lot of C-sections on behalf of the midwives that were leading this birth center at his Parisian hospital in the 60s and in 70s. Mm-hmm. One thing that he you know, speaks so eloquently about is that we have tended to focus entirely all of our research and our protocols and our, our um, interventions in order to avoid the one bad thing. So we're studying so much the pathology, which is why people um, who come out of the medical industrial complex educated through that system, they see pregnancy as a disease. Well, what if we flip that on its head? What if we studied people like you who did have this beautiful experience and tried to model our system after that? What was it that made this one so great versus made that one so bad? And while, and, and maybe we can benefit those bad, uh, oftentimes anomalous, you know, um, compared to the wide number, you know, array of women who are having really, really healing, beautiful births. When you think about your own birth and you, mm-hmm. and you say, hey, I'd love to be able to study this and apply what my experience was to other births, mm-hmm. right? Like if it was if it was that was your model and you're going to build off of it, mm-hmm. what does that look like when you start to think about that? Like what what is so great about what was so great about your birth that you would love mm-hmm. to impress upon other other people? Yeah, I mean, I think I've been thinking about that for 23 years, and I also have the juxtaposition of having experienced my third birth, which I write about, which was Mm -hmm. a, quote, free birth that resulted in trauma. Mm. So there's an interesting, yeah, yeah, very interesting story there. And it took me a while to actually acknowledge that, oh, that that was traumatic and got embedded in my body as traumatic and also my psyche as traumatic and shame. So shame I lived with for a really long time. So the first question about, you know, what would I 
you know, how would we model it after that? You know, one of the things that I paid very close attention to was, you know, how did I prepare for this experience? I think a lot about vision questing and medicine people who, you know, take take groups of people out every year and prepare them for Sundance and quest. And there's a there's protocol. Mm-hmm. There's preparation, there's commitment, there's context. And so the people who are choosing to go into those challenging transformative spaces, they're not going in blindly and they're not expecting the medicine person, you know, the elder of the community to save them from that experience. Mm. But there's culture around it. And you know, I look at I look at birth personally. Not everybody does, but I look at birth as a um, transformational experience. It's a sacred rite of passage. It's a portal, um, and and I feel like I've been in the study of it through my own birth experiences and having witnessed birth, and then now on this other side. So, you know, of course, I'm very fascinated by it, and so I think the preparation is key. I think the intention is key. Um, and I think preparing in, in that preparation, shifting away from fear and moving towards trust in the process. Mm. So just like if we were to enter a psychedelic experience or breath work, right? Trusting in that process. So knowing the process is going to be hard, but knowing that there are ways in which one can be with the intensity and the pain and the fear of that experience. Yeah. And so we failed, you could say, well, or, or maybe we didn't fail because maybe this was intentional, <laughs> you know, but I would say that we have failed pregnant mothers to prepare in such a way to, to recognize the value of treating this experience as a rite of passage. Yeah. Yeah, this is so fresh for me right now because my wife and I were just watching a TV show last night and, and there was a birth and mm-hmm. immediately it brings her back to her own birth. So we've had two babies. One was in the hospital, mm-hmm. unmedicated, all that stuff, but the second was at home and that actually was a very healing experience for her. It's hard for me to actually to empathize because I'm a man. I've never had a baby. There's no true empathy in the sense that I can't say, hey, this is how this might feel. Here's what you might do. Because I haven't really been there. I can sympathize, mm-hmm. but empathy is a little bit trickier. And, and as she and I were talking about this, she said, you know, it's really, it's really interesting. She said, I feel good about my births. But she said, I can't even really clarify what it feels like when you start to feel labor coming on knowing that you're going to go through this this tremendous experience. And this is a woman who who has had two unmedicated births. You'd think that she's so woke and conscious and, hmm. and everything else, and she is, but she doesn't have the language. This is, there's an ineffability to it, which is why talk therapy sometimes, I think, it has to be done so delicately. She said, I don't really know how I can possibly describe that overwhelming sense of, she didn't use the word fear, but fear is mm-hmm. certainly a part of it, but that overwhelming, oh my God, we're doing this now. Mm-hmm. Even you if know, you've there's... had nine months to prepare. <laughs> I mean, I do liken it to anybody who has ventured in the psychedelic spaces and or to holotropic spaces. Yeah. 
in yeah. that there is an anticipatory buzz mm. that I think those who really recognize and and are kind of like courting that space with reverence where it's like something is going to happen I I can't control what's going to yeah. happen I can't put my finger on what's going to happen so I I can only surrender to trusting the process yeah and you know when I think about that hmm. so again I'm circling all over so when I think about your comment about so much of the protocol and the procedures that somebody like your yourself in that industry would be trained in, even modern day midwifery. Sure, sure, yeah, is is trained in is that it's it's all circling around, you know, what I say that 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 belief or that premise or that worldview that we need to do this at all costs to prevent death because yeah. we're death phobic, and and I don't say that lightly because of course we. We don't want our babies to die. Mm -hmm. And and I know how horrendous that side is. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So I'm even hesitant to say that, you know, <laughs> knowing how intense that is. It's it's a weighted, it's a weighted thing for us to be talking about. But mm. that is the truth. The truth is all of this is there to prevent death. In other words, it makes it seem as if the risk of death is so much more prevalent yeah. than the risk of health and life. Right. And it right. makes it seem that we can't trust in life itself as wanting to live. Right. I don't know if you're following me, but this is, you know, these are some of the places that I yeah. go. And so because of that, we intervene and we feel well positioned to do so because there is a sense of mm, pride in that yeah. that can come through right so so because we have framed our culture around that and we have framed birth as an extension of it <laughs> right in this space of well we need to do everything at all costs to prevent death even if that results in harming you right physically right. and psychologically even if that results in harming your baby mm -hmm. physically and psychologically, as long as the two of you are breathing, yeah. we have done good work. That's a hell of a, of, a, of a benchmark for us to reach. The mom and baby are alive. Right. If that's the only goal, then throw more surgery, throw more pharmaceuticals, because we know we can prevent most deaths. But if there's more to this whole human experience than just breathing and having a heartbeat, <laughs> then we have to consider all of the other factors that make you, you. And I think right. that's where we start getting bound up. That may even actually be where we hit a dead end with this Western medical model. Um, mm -hmm. Because like you said, we are throwing more and more medicine at what I would say is less a physical problem, more a mental, emotional, and even spiritual problem. And our medicines and surgery can't touch those things. But right. of course, those things are still not necessarily considered the purview of, quote, medicine. Hmm. And if you look at how I was trained as an OBGYN, it certainly wasn't a part of my training. This is something that I had to meet people like you and start to developing language around it. But what you don't want to say that I'm willing to say is that hmm. not every baby is entitled to come into the world alive. Hmm. 
and what I mean by that is that we shouldn't, it's not, I'm not saying we shouldn't intervene when we can or that we shouldn't do certain things that might, you know, rectify the ship and get you back on course towards life. But if we're willing to say, I'm willing to damage you in a mental, emotional, or spiritual way, all for the sake of preserving the physical, which we equate with healthy mom, healthy baby, you're both alive. What, what do you have to be, you know, sorry about? That's where we start to actually create a, a more damage than we can even um, presume mm-hmm. if our only metrics are blood loss, infection rates, and living mom, living baby. Mm-hmm. So we are <clears throat> the work that you're doing is actually helping to create a more <clears throat> comprehensive lens through which we can we can view the birthing experience um, that mm-hmm. goes beyond just we need to assure at all costs that this baby is alive. The baby might even have brain damage or cerebral palsy or mom might have a horrible um, psychopathy afterwards due to the intense trauma she experienced. But hey, healthy mom, healthy baby. So, um, And we're not responsible. And we're not responsible. Yeah, yeah. We're not, we're not responsible to help fund your recovery. Yeah. We're not responsible That's to make a... sure, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's that, it, it, our mental health care in the, in North America is appalling, mm-hmm. but it's because we don't value it. We don't see that as a, as our thing. It's not measurable, therefore, it's not our purview, and that's why mm-hmm. so many social workers, therapists, um, so many people who are working in the non strictly physical surgical way, they're not even incentivized to do these jobs. There's not a lot of pay. There's not a lot of support. You know, it's. Mm-hmm. Every for every Jennifer Summerfelt out there, there's a hundred women that need you, and it's just mm-hmm. we've got a long way to go. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's not accessible. Yeah. Well, thank you for saying that. That's a really taboo conversation, and you know, I'm sure we could go into it. I I do want to circle back to this point that's kind of coming through, yeah. linking preparation and fear and all that kind of yeah, stuff. Please. So. See, I think what we're experiencing culturally because of the worldview of, you know, everything at all costs to prevent death. So we don't embody and accept death as, you know, and therefore trust in life. Mm. We place our trust outside of ourselves. So let me see if I can prove this point that's coming through and and maybe you can help me sift it out. So in my personal experience, I'm just going to disclose some of my own be transparent about some of my own experiences. So not only in my birthing experience, also in some of my psychedelic healing experiences, something that was a thread of common ground was in in my birth experiences, I came to a place of profound trust in the process. Mm. I had done enough research on my own, 23 years old, you know, the the walk-in clinic doctor I went and saw to find out that I was pregnant for some reason told me, you know, horrible thing that presented in the labor itself. So we are imprinted by what we're told, especially in the prenatal period. But regardless, I came to a place, I had so much trust in my physical body and I had so much trust in the process of birth itself as innate to my like mammalian species. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So because of that trust, I could surrender to the process. And because of that, surrender. I could surrender to the process. I didn't have to fight the process because I was afraid 
I could surrender to it, even though it was intense and painful and wild and more wild than anything I've ever experienced, right? Mm. And yes, I looked outside of myself to the midwives who were there as, you know, safety figures, like, okay, so they understand what's going on here. And they kept affirming, yes, this is normal. Yes, you know, this is, you're safe, basically. So I could go deeper in and deeper in. Well, the same thing is true for me. And just so you know, or everybody knows why I'm talking about psychedelics is because I'm in a post-grad program for psychedelic assisted therapy. So I'm deeply curious. Yeah, that's a, we can, (laughs) but I just wanted to put a premise out there, like as to why am I talking about this? (laughs) Because birth is a psychedelic experience for sure. It's a holotropic experience. And so, and that, and anyways, and so in that psychedelic space, It wasn't until I knew enough about what these certain, let's say, medicines or or substances would do to my system, and I knew enough about how to be with my mind that I felt safe enough to surrender to the experience. Mm. Mm. So trusting the process of whatever's going to unfold in a psychedelic space is to me the same as trusting the process of whatever's going to unfold in the birthing space. Yeah. One could say it's trusting the process of whatever would unfold on one's deathbed too. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so this mm. is all about this idea of trusting the process, but how does somebody come to the place of feeling that they can trust the process versus trust the institution? Yeah. So I know that there are a lot of moms out there who have placed an enormous amount of faith and trust in the institution to keep them and their babies safe. And the only way that they can regulate their nervous system to feel safe enough to go through that process, to believe and know that because of this medical institution and because of these procedures, we're going to be okay. Yeah. And that is regulating for their system. And so then they don't have a traumatic birth experience when they have an elective Mm. cesarean, or they Mm. don't have a traumatic birth experience when they're in alliance with their obstetrician and their obstetrician is doing all of the protocol interventions that I might through my paradigm think could result in trauma or harm or violence Mm. or are unnecessary. But because this mom's trust is not in the process of birth, but in the institution itself and the person who's trained in that institution, they have a false sense of security and safety. I say false because it's not in the process itself, it's in the institution. Now, when the institution ends up disrupting that sense of trust, it's really destabilizing. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. whether it's the obstetrician or whether it's the midwife, I experience with my clients that there's more trauma and disruption when it comes from the midwife because the fall is bigger. Yeah. There was yeah. an expectation that the midwife would not be operating under a certain paradigm of care. And then when it turns out that they are, there's, there's a crushing disappointment. Yeah. Yeah. So, so really going back to what we had said, 
if trauma is is uh, a lack of appropriate integration of a stressful experience and nobody out there is going to say birth is not stressful it's supposed to be stressful like this is a transformation of spirit there is something challenging happening here regardless um through that lens i think that we have to really really consider expectations and then what's actually delivered so in other words like you said i personally i don't think there's any right way to have a baby Mm -hmm. if it was me i would not want to do an elective c-section for some other people because the process of laboring and pushing a baby out and whatever it was from from their story something about that was so traumatic that they're like i just can't do that again let's just jump straight to the curtain strap Mm -hmm. me down do whatever but that actually will be healing for me so that's fine like this is all a uh, this is all a matter of perspective and Mm -hmm. uh, a person's story through which they view a past birth or even past life experience Mm -hmm. may dictate how does this birth go for them? Mm-hmm. Which is why it's still okay that we have hospitals. It's okay that we have interventions. Mm-hmm. The problem is that the hospital is investing trillions of dollars to advertise safety Correct. without really anticipating or exploring what does safe mean for this person who's coming to us to, quote, keep them safe. Mm-hmm. And, and the same goes for midwives. I can't tell you how many people, mm-hmm. uh, charts I've reviewed, whereby, mm-hmm. let's say, a certified nurse midwife who has that midwife in the title, has recommended something using coercive language that ultimately results in a catastrophic birth outcome. Mm-hmm. And then we look back through the charts, you know, somebody like Hermine Hayes-Klein, who's a, a friend of mine, um, and who's an attorney who focuses on, on childbirth uh, trauma and obstetric violence. Mm-hmm. I'll look through the chart, and it's, it's like the issue here is not actually what happened. They're okay with what happened. I mean, they're, they're working through what happened. And they didn't go in with a magical thinking that everything's just going to be fine. But they did sign up with this hospital because they had a midwife and they were more in alignment with the midwifery model of care. And this actually seemed more like a diluted version of, a, uh, of midwifery um, mm-hmm. through the lens of obstetrics. And so that birth was even more traumatic because it was almost like false advertising. You mm-hmm. said I was going to be taken care of like a midwife and you took care of me like an obstetrician. And that in and of itself can be traumatic. So we have to be very, very clear in our mm-hmm. birth planning. I use air quotes for that because birth plans are not meant to suggest this is how my birth is going to go. It's really a, a, a collection, a, a reflection of your values. Where mm-hmm. do you feel safe? What are you afraid of? What does bring you joy? All of those things. It's like advanced care planning in, in, in hospice <laughs> and palliative care. Mm. Um, and I think that that's a big part of this if you're built on a uh, on an unstable foundation then integrating the stress of this incredible sometimes very beautiful experience mm-hmm. can be impossible mm-hmm. this kind of brings up the whole notion around true transparent informed consent yeah and yeah. Mm. and i think you know this idea of my birth is going to be the safest right depending on what I believe or what worldview I carry mm-hmm. um, about who can provide me with the safest care. Yeah. So somebody might feel like the safest environment for me to give birth is uh, a very highly medically managed birth experience um, in which they feel very aligned with their obstetrician, let's say, very safe there. And then the flip to that is somebody over here is aligning with, you know, free birth and, not needing any caregivers there at right, all. That right. is 
where I can experience the most amount of safety. So we've got this huge spectrum. Yeah. And within that spectrum, anybody could experience their birth to be traumatic. Right. Which was very humbling for me coming at it from the point of view and position that I originally came at it from when I was, you know, so wise at 23 years old, <laughs> you know, which was that everybody needs to have the kind of birth experience that I have. We see a lot of that, right? If we just go way over here to the left, you're just going to avoid birth trauma altogether. Right. So we just need to, you know, get people committed to having, you know, taking responsibility for their bodies and for their births and, you know, turning away from the medical establishment, let's yeah. say. So I know that's not true. So this really does come down to, as you were saying, expectations. To me, I understand that as being well-informed. Yeah. So in nervous system-informed care or polyvagal theory, we know, according to Stephen Porges, so, you know, I'm taking this theory and I'm applying it. It's not my theory. But we know that foundationally, there are three core elements that support the health and well-being of the nervous system to function optimally. And I call these, you know, I, I, I kind of label this whole thing as learning your letters, like you're learning a whole new alphabet, but this is your C's. So you're learning your C's. And the three C's are context, choice, and connection. So context, information, when we lack context, we experience confusion and confusion dysregulates the system, discombobulates it. So it dysregulates the mind and it dysregulates the nervous system. Choice, freedom. When we don't have choice, we feel trapped. Mm -hmm. I mean, we just say the word trapped, everybody can get a sense of what that feels like in their system, in their body you know, we're like a wild animal caged, right? So a lack of choice results in feeling trapped, which is going to dysregulate the nervous system, all of which creates disconnection. Yeah. And then if there's an interruption of connection, let's just think about some of the policies during the COVID era where you couldn't even have your partner present in some, some places. So there's disconnection and so when all three of those are disrupted, the nervous system is in a state of trapped survival stress, which means that we're at risk of trauma. Yeah. We also know, and you would know this, physiologically, if the nervous system is in a state of trapped survival stress, then it's not going to progress instinctively and physiologically in labor. Right, right, right. Yeah. Yeah. It's, so not, a, it's I, not a great yeah. time to have a baby when you're being chased by something. <laughs> right. And so or you're being trapped I, in a cage. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And so when I go through the seas with clients that I work with and I say, you know, let's just point out throughout your, let's say, labor and delivery, you know, at what point did you no longer have access to these seas? Mm. And, and without a doubt, all, all of them experienced that the entire labor and delivery didn't have any of those C's. So yeah, yeah, right? there was no context, there was no choice, there was lack of connection. Context, and so choice and connection. Yeah, very simple, but kind of mapping that onto then how their system responded. It's like, okay, so your system was actually working in your favor. It was trying to protect you. 
and your baby. So mm. it was shutting things down, <laughs> right? Unless you were at that precipitous moment where you might just expel your baby spon yeah. spontaneously due to fear, right? Like in the wild, you could imagine that, right? But generally speaking, what tends to happen is things just shut down. Yeah. There's no progression, yeah. right? So when I say your body was working in your favor, not against you, because so many moms internalize, well, my body failed me because mm. it didn't progress. Something was wrong with my body or something was wrong with my baby, right? So it's always coming back to the individual. And I'm like, well, let's just look at your environment for a moment and see how you were supported in that and whether or not these these three C's were supported. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right? Yeah. And anybody who experienced their birth as having been traumatic, like I said, those C's were not available. And when I say your body was working in your favor, not against you, that tends to result in a relaxation of mm. like, oh. And I said, so because your system didn't experience that environment as having been safe enough for you to actually go through the vulnerable process of delivering your offspring and then being able to protect and take care of it immediately. So if you're in the wild, think about that, right? Yeah, yeah. I have something to say to add okay, to that, good. but let's take a very, very brief pause and we'll come right back. When I left hospital-based OBGYN practice several years ago, I had the option to join um, midwife community as a home birth attendant and I was getting all of my ducks in a row and I was figuring out what it was going to cost but then I realized you know licensure was on the horizon I'm going to be competing with the Kentucky midwives and they've worked hard for this they've been doing great work for years and I love the traditional midwifery model of care but I'll never be a midwife so while I do attend some home births I also um, figured out that if I really, really believed in the midwifery model of care, let me do my best to make it possible for midwives to do the thing that midwives do so well, which is providing patient-centered, compassionate prenatal care all the way through the postpartum um, time period. So <clears throat> that gave birth, this realization gave birth to my collaborator program. I invite midwives of all types in any state to check out my website. It's belovedholistics.com collaborate. And you can find, what you'll find there is that I've put together a program whereby you can have me as an MD consultant to bounce anything off of, any issues you have with interpreting labs, um, perhaps interpreting, you know, some, some help with clinical decision making for your patient that just had some wacky urinalysis labs come back. Um, at the gold level, I also will prescribe medications, order imaging, order labs. I am willing to get licensed in your state, and if you're in a state that requires a prescriptive authority or a supervising physician, there's all these different names, I'm also willing to do that at the gold level. So all of the details are available at BelovedHolistics.com. Just click the Midwives tab at the top, and you'll get to see all of the information there. And then when you're ready to enroll, you can just pop over to the website, join it. It's a monthly membership fee. You also get access to all of my summaries of ACOG's practice bulletins and also many of their committee opinions. And at the gold level, there's twice monthly peer review. And um, you're going to have a whole community of, uh, of midwives, my entire network, in order to help support you, whether you're, early, whether you're early in practice or you've been doing this for many years. So go to BelovedHolistics.com slash collaborate or just click the midwives tab um, in the menu on my website and we can get started working together. All right, let's get back to my conversation now. Okay, Alex, we're going to jump back in here with Jennifer Sommerfeld, right? 
Jennifer, one thing I wanted to add to, you're so eloquent. I mean, you, I could just mm-hmm. listen to you speak. You, you're so thoughtful and you're just so, you're very deliberate with your language, but you're also like so curious with your language, which is why I think you probably are such a great therapist. Mm-hmm. One thing I, I have a curiosity about and that I've kind of, it's not that I've struggled with it. I, again, I just don't know if I have enough mm-hmm. modeling for this but I get the sense that when a woman has a, a C-section, perhaps, mm-hmm. and whether it was elective or if, you know, they in retrospect feel like, oh, maybe we should have tried harder for the birth. or There's all this language that's used. When a person is in labor, you know, they're going to have a baby vaginally. That's the plan. Something happens. They don't have the baby vaginally or they schedule their C-section at 39 weeks or whatever and, and all is well. Mm-hmm. Is there something about something on the the less physical, the more mental, emotional, or even spiritual level that's like, ah, something has not been completed here. Mm-hmm. And the next time they get pregnant and they're in labor, it's almost like twice the amount of experience they have because mm-hmm. they haven't completed the loop. Mm-hmm. Does that make any sense to you at all? Or am I, am I like shooting in the dark here? What, what do you think about that? It's an interesting question. I mean, I don't think that I could answer it, obviously, with absolute certainty by any means. But I notice that I often will say to moms who are preparing for their subsequent labor and delivery, and especially moms who maybe had experienced their first birth as having been traumatic or deeply disappointing, that they're going to come to a point in their labor experience, most likely that is going to challenge them in a similar way that they were challenged that first time around. And that the key will be to navigate beyond it. So in a way we're preparing for that possibility to be there and that now with more context, more choice, more preparation, more mental, right? All of that, that it's like when they hit it, they're like, oh, yes, I w- I'm supposed to be here. I'm going to be na- I'm going to be facing this. Like I say, everybody in labor is going to face a moment where they have to face some kind of shit. Sure. Yeah. Right. And so if we just yeah. turn away from that shit or we don't know how to face it. Right. Then we come back in and we have this opportunity to maybe try again. Hmm. Something that's coming up for me as we're talking, I don't know if I answered that question at all. I don't think there's an answer. I just kind of want to talk to somebody who's smart and has experience in the space about these things that I'm observing. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I am very cautious with the words that I choose, especially around speaking about the experience of labor and delivery and that every experience is so unique. I mean, you've seen a lot of it, so you might have more to say about it, but that we can impose an ideology so easily without even realizing that we're doing it, which then creates this kind of separation. And I'm just afraid, I'm, I notice that I'm cautious to not say anything is absolute, but there is something that shows up for me that I've been paying a lot of attention to. And especially as I've been studying w- with Stan Groff's material and learning more about the BPMs, the per- perinatal matrices stuff. And there's something about it that's rubbing me (laughs) and and, and, and it's hitting my edge and I've been trying to unpack it, but this has to do with what we're talking about. And so 
here's what happens. Moms hear conversations like this and moms who maybe, like I said, had a challenging birth experience and they feel guilt. Yeah. They're, and so the minute we Shame, say something guilt. like, yeah, yeah, the minute we say something like, if we interrupted the process with a cesarean section or, you know, the safest, the safest option for you that kept your system most regulated and in ventral, ventral being calm, connected state, I call it the thriving state, was to have an elected cesarean section because it gave you the most context, the most choice, the most connection, mm. least option, like the, the least- The most control, would you say? Well, that does provide the ego mind with a sense of control. Yeah, yeah, right, right. So, so somebody might be hearing that and then all of a sudden- there's some, you know, some sort of force field of guilt that overwhelms them or the mom who was preparing for a free birth and, and that didn't turn out the way that they had hoped for. And now they're trying to negotiate all of that internally. And the, the common thread is guilt, mm. which is if I bypass this experience, I missed out on something transformative, something important, something that is supposed to evolve me spiritually. And it's like I took that exit route let's say, right? And so then there's this idea that because of that, I'm lesser than, or I've done something wrong. There's an internalization there that can happen. Now, I'm not saying hmm. we should prevent that from happening, meaning I'm not saying we should coddle people's emotional experiences. But what I am saying is that I think you're onto something, which is that if we don't complete that process in the labor and delivery that I believe there is the opportunity to complete it in the postpartum. And yeah. that comes in through integration and it comes in through experiencing maybe the grief. Yeah. Grief, man, we do not like grief. We do not. We like to use little platitudes like you lose your husband. There was a really famous Ted talk that was circulating for a while. A young woman lost her husband to cancer or something. And the platitudes that come to us when we lose people. Oh, everything gets better with time. You'll heal with time. Mm. You never heal from grief. That is actually critical. Mm. It's something you take with you. It becomes a part of your story. And you may disagree with this. is just my mm -hmm. me bloviating uh, as always. Mm -hmm. But for us to say, to, uh, for us to brush grief aside, mm -hmm. it doesn't go away. It's no. It does. It goes nowhere. We can integrate it. We can start to try to find meaning in it. There's various techniques that people use, but it becomes a part of you. It can actually, it can actually be healing to mm -hmm. look at grief and to really mm -hmm. sit with grief. But we as mm -hmm. people, as doctors especially, mm -hmm. we have absolutely zero tolerance to sit with people in pain. Mm -hmm. We hand them tissues as soon as they start crying. We hug them just so that they don't, mm -hmm. we don't want them to feel the pain because it, it's, mm -hmm. that's on us, you know? Like it's making me hurt to watch you hurt. I see this in hospice and palliative care all the time. Mm -hmm. There is a reason that you are experiencing grief. What mm. can we learn from this? How do we make this a part of our story now? Because you can't mm. bring this person's husband back or their baby back or their birth back. It was something mm -hmm. that happened. Mm -hmm. So anyways, mm -hmm. preach. I, I love what you're saying. <laughs> well, one of my teachers said that, you know, you can't heal from trauma without grief. You can't have trauma without grief, but you can have grief without trauma. And mm. so meaning... 
somebody, let's say, you know, my husband dies of cancer, like you were sharing that story, and that experience doesn't have to be traumatic. Yes, yes. But it is yes. grief-filled. Yeah. But when we experience something traumatic, the healing comes through the grief. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So if there's no grief in the healing, then the healing hasn't started yet. And so, yeah. you know, my thing is, as as a therapist is much of the work is preparing oneself to be okay to sit in the grief mm-hmm. and to integrate. Yeah. Just like in, you know, the psychedelic world, my bias is there's not enough integration. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, yes. Stan Groff talks a lot about this. Rick Doblin, even of maps talks quite yeah. a bit about this, that without that integration piece, yeah. Or even ritual, a ceremony around yes. what you just went through. The medicine is actually not the hard part. It's the integration mm-hmm. that is is critical. And I think that's where totally. people going down to, you know, Peru and, <laughs> and doing ayahuasca every month, like, what are you running from? You need to integrate this. The, the work comes mm-hmm. for maybe years after that exactly. medicine experience or birth or exactly. the loss of a loved one. Yeah, It's I'm not a weekend. Yeah. yeah. Our postpartum's not a weekend. Yeah. Our yeah. postpartum's not 40 days. Our postpartum's not even two years. In my opinion, that I'm still integrating 17 yeah. years later, my birth of my free birth daughter, yeah. layer upon layer. Yeah. So when we don't have integration, so to kind of answer your question about one of the things that I hold core is if a mom feels like they had a traumatic birth experience or it's grief-filled because it was very disappointing, then they've been initiated. Yeah. Maybe the initiation didn't come through this spontaneous physiological vaginal birth experience that many of us talk about as being empowering and all this stuff, but they're being initiated through the process of healing and grief, mm. which to me, actually, is so powerful because if they want it, to be able to start to really embody and integrate and heal from that experience is going to deepen them, wisen them as a human being. And it will deepen their relationship to their loved ones and their and their child. And so that's really helped me shift away from needing to change the whole birth experience itself, thinking that we're harming families, which, you know, I I would argue there are, I don't align with that paradigm, but it's there. The paradigm's there. And we had this idea that the initiation comes through the, the, the process itself of having, you know, come to the other side, right? But grief is part of that initiation. And being held on that other side is part of that initiation. And again, this is something that, you know, if I look at indigenous culture and I look at different ceremonial ritual culture, when you go through an initiation, you're received and celebrated on that other side. And And in that celebration, you get to name and claim the gifts that have come through that experience for you, that they belong to you. And so when I work with moms, the goal for me and us is to get to the place where they can claim and celebrate 
their story and the wisdom that's come from their story. And that's different for everybody. Yeah. One of the things that's now I'm going to circle back to social media and what we started with. (laughs) Social media is doing quite a bit of harm within the birth community. If I do say so myself, I think it's not really paying homage, the appropriate homage to just how powerful this experience is of birth. So Mm -hmm. yeah, I mean, (laughs) I, I have my opinions too. I'm not on social media. So my business isn't on social media and um, I don't go on social media. So I only hear about it through my clients, the impact that social media is having for them. And um, it's probably why you have so many more brain cells than me. I don't know. Social media. (laughs) (laughs) But regardless, I love to hear about what's going on in that world. Sure. And what I wanted to say, because you had mentioned that the word kind of birth trauma is just sort of being co-opted or being used a lot and that it's, and um, it's like a pulse out there. And I would agree, like when I was really considering the whole world on trauma and merging it with the world of what we were calling obstetrical violence at that time, nothing was being written about this, right? I felt like I was at the frontier of it. Mm. And now I see an explosion, like you were saying, it's kind of everywhere. But what I experience, and my teacher, one of my teachers, one of my mentors, always said for years, you know, we don't want to feed the wound. Because if we feed the wound, the wound festers. So you want to be able to tend to the wound, but then transform the wound, right? Let the wound heal. What I see is happening on social media is there's a lot of feeding the wound. And Carolyn Miss talks about this through, you know, bonding over our pains or or I think Eckhart Tolle would talk about it as our pain bodies, right? So we're all coming together, sharing in that experience, this one pain body experience that I would call the great birth wound. Yeah. And we're we're giving it a lot of energy, a lot of attention. We're making it really important. And it's becoming a platform for many of us to project these unmetabolized, undigested emotional and psychological materials that actually then end up being projected externally and they're not digested. So they're not turning into wisdom. This sounds like quackery. It sounds like you're talking about German new medicine here. I don't know. <laughs> Am I not making sense? No, I'm, I'm, I'm teasing. I, oh, what oh, you're okay. describing is exactly the, the work of, I think his name's Robert Hammer of uh, German new medicine fame, which is really exactly what you're talking. In fact, the word morsel, an undigested morsel, manifesting as physical dis- dis-ease in the body, mm-hmm. that yeah. is the, the foundation of German new medicine. It provides mm-hmm. a different paradigm as to what we mean when we say trauma is stored in the body. Mm-hmm. It's uh, mm-hmm. not going to be a molecule that you get out of something, blood marker or whatever. It's going to be a phys- physical manifestation that reflects something that hasn't been integrated well, mm-hmm. specifically within your nervous system, but because your nervous system touches everything and mm-hmm. is really your connection mm-hmm. to the cosmos in many regards or to Mother Earth, agree. depending on how yeah, you well, look at well, it. I believe it anchors us. Yeah, right, it's, right. It's, it's the conduit. It's the antenna. Yeah. 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 Well, you're the antenna and that's the, yeah. the conduit. Yeah. So anyways, I, I didn't mean to take you off there, but no, you, no, I love this it. is very, very much, I think, more of the type of language that we need to be willing to look at. I think there's a lot of grief in our society 
Mm-hmm. And when we use language like this, it forces people to look at grief in a different way. But that mm-hmm. doesn't mean it's not helpful. We just need to try to do it in a respectful, compassionate way, which I think you're doing a great job of. Mm-hmm. I'm trying. I'm sure yeah. not everybody would think so, but <laughs> <laughs> I could keep going. But Yeah, I know. You and I can riff for hours. I definitely want to talk a little bit about psychedelics because mm-hmm. uh, you and I have both been bedazzled in various ways through our psychedelic experiences. And and what I always tell people when they think about psychedelics is you have to get past this drugs are bad sort of thing because of all of the things, including holotropic breathing, actually. My friend Sarah Tramoli now leads um, groups of of birth workers and pregnant women in a type of breathwork called effigy breathwork, which is not well known. It's not as well advertised as a lot of the the bigger Mm -hmm. names. But Sarah breathed with us in our pregnancy and in our birth and the story, of course, is that our baby just came out through the portal, was totally asleep on her chest. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was like as beautiful mm-hmm. a birth as you could have. Yeah, and speaking of which, when my wife had the hospital birth, I was like, honey, that was like the best birth I'd ever seen. <laughs> she was like, yeah, that's funny you say that. Something didn't feel right about it. She felt like she stepped back from the edge when the fear mm-hmm. set in around the pushing mm-hmm. process. Uh-huh, and yeah. uh, fast forward to our second birth, and she actually said, something that was undigested in your words, she didn't use those words, Mm. seemed there was a clarity, there was a healing process Mm. through the birth of our second baby, Mm. which Mm -hmm. is why I even asked about that whole, like something was left unresolved, right? Are we going to go through that again and doubly? We have some, some, you know, some slack to pick up from the past, from the past birth. I just, I just think so deeply about this, but anyways, I digress. The psychedelic experience for people, I think it's relevant to a conversation because Marin Green, who's a good friend of mine, and she has Indie Birth as her, as her midwifery program. She had said that that style of breathing, effigy, was as close to birth as she could have, that she could possibly give somebody. So she's been recommending to everybody, listen, mm-hmm. this is how you get to go through mm-hmm. that, that experience of being pushed to the edge and then having mm-hmm. to take this, this leap of faith, a surrender to the process. Mm-hmm. Psychedelics, I feel, are a very interesting experience. And, and what I will say is you don't have to do psychedelics every month to get the, the effect. You might have one really good psychedelic journey that is well integrated that may last you your entire lifetime. True. This tendency we have to be microdosing every day and different strains for this and that and everybody's like their business is mushrooms. There's no business to be mm-hmm. made from mushrooms in my in my mm-hmm. opinion. It's a matter of of helping a person identify the the correct set and setting for them to have a transformational experience. And the reason I'm bringing psychedelics up is when people ask me are psychedelics safe? That word safe doesn't work because mm. there is nothing. If you mean you're going to die, again, we're reducing this down to just being alive afterwards. Psychedelics are safe. Not many people are, are dying unless they're jumping off bridges or something thinking they can fly, which doesn't happen. That's what Reagan and Nixon wanted you to believe. Mm-hmm. That doesn't usually happen. Usually it's you're laying in your bed in a fetal position crying for four hours. That's, <laughs> in my experience, that's it more like... It might not feel safe to your psyche. Well, so that's it. That's it. There is, if you're doing this in order to have a transformational experience, mm-hmm. there is there is no safety in transforming mm. because we've reduced it down to just, are you alive or dead afterwards? That's our whole thing. But there is, there is the potential for great growth. And just like with any initiation, death must be on the line. Not yeah. death to your physical body, your heart and lungs. But death to your psyche, death to yeah. the old archetype, you're, you're giving away, you're being reborn as a new person. So 
if we were to take this experience with psychedelics or, or the allegory of psychedelics and superimpose that onto birth, I would mm-hmm. also say, controversial opinion, everybody, there is nothing safe about birth. Yes, you're going to have a baby and you're probably going to be living. Yes, it's safe in that regard. But I think social media has, even the people that seem like woke about birth, you're missing the point. There is nothing safe about a life-altering transformation of mental, emotional, or spirit. And that is something that people really get, they get chafed about. What say you, from your experience with psychedelics and what I've said, I mean, just reflect on what I've said, because I really want some better language to help Mm. people understand this. And you may totally disagree about the safe thing. I just don't think that the word safety is very helpful to people anymore, Mm -hmm. especially with COVID and everything. It's safe. Like, safe to who? Safe for what reason? Like, Mm -hmm. but we won't go to COVID right now. (laughs) No, yeah. I mean, the word safety has definitely been co-opted. And we attach to it, well, we being, I would say, our ego mind. So maybe we need to replace the word safe with a word that actually embodies this idea that life life itself wants to live. So when I think about birth, I often say, like, there are no guarantees. Mm. Right? That is truth, in my opinion, that you're not guaranteed you're going to have mm. a certain kind of experience. That's that entitlement piece that I I was referring to earlier. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So even with the best team, even with, you know, an elected cesarean, there's no guarantee that you're going to have the outcome that you're hoping to have. Yeah. That is very destabilizing to the egoic mind. I like that destabilizing word you've you've brought up a few times. Mm -hmm. I I might steal Mm -hmm. that for myself because that is very much... I think a better word than safe. Is it unsafe? Mm. No. Is it destabilizing? Hell yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. I think that's what these experiences yeah. are. And death itself is destabilizing. And so when you hear that there's no guarantee that you can do all this work to prepare and you still can't with certainty know the experience that you're about to have and you can't with certainty know whether or not you or your baby are going to make it through alive. So there's an assumption there that we're supposed to, in my opinion. So the assumption is that because I'm human, I'm supposed to have an experience that results in life, in living. Does that make sense? Are you following yeah, what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you know Stephen Jenkinson, the author? Uh, yeah. Yeah, he, he, yeah, the book of shoulds is something he brings up quite often. He's okay. a mentor of mine, but yeah, yeah go ahead. Yeah. yeah, familiar with his work. Yeah, fellow Canadian. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So yeah, there, you know, so so because of that assumption, that's an entitlement of some sort that I'm supposed to live, we're supposed to do everything in our power to live and don't interrupt that process, please. And therefore, if I do all of these things, and it doesn't result in the outcome that I was preparing for, then somebody needs to be blamed. That's either me or something outside of myself. Because it should not have turned out that way. Yeah. So that's all based on the premise of assumptions. And the assumption is that we're supposed to live instead of the assumption being the one guarantee is we die. Death is the one guarantee that we know with certainty happens. Now, what happens? Death being to this physical form. We can have Mm. a conversation about what Mm. happens. Yeah, of course. (laughs) Of course. Yeah. So there's more certainty in we will die, then there is certainty and we will live. And then we formulate 
our life and we do all these things in opposition to death itself. And therefore we live a life of constriction and we're not actually stepping into being alive. Yeah. Very few of us actually live. I think it was Ayn Rand. I don't really care for Ayn Rand, but her book Atlas Shrugged was probably one of the best books I ever read. Hmm. And I was an objectivist for a period of time. And then a lot of other people kind of co-opted her work and it was pulled out of context and everything Mm -hmm. else. But anyways, Ayn Rand, I'll I'll bring her into the conversation. Mm -hmm. She had said something uh, on her philosophy of living, like a little book. Mm -hmm. And it was like, living is not merely avoiding death or or prolonging Mm -hmm. dying or something like that. But that's, I think, really Mm -hmm. brings us full circle here Mm -hmm. where every experience you have Mm -hmm. the only thing you know you don't get a vote as to whether or not you die we -hmm. like to believe that through the transhumanist movements and whatnot that Mm -hmm. that's not true but the privilege of dying is a reflection of all the time you had to live and to gather Mm -hmm. experiences at the soul level to carry Mm -hmm. with you into whatever happens afterwards i'm not gonna Mm -hmm. act like i know Mm -hmm. although i think i've seen glimpses of it through very very deep psychedelic journeys Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm -hmm. as you probably have Mm -hmm. When we assume, we make an ass out of you and me, (laughs) whenever (laughs) we assume that an experience is supposed to go a certain way, Mm -hmm. there's that expectation and reality piece as well. Mm -hmm. We naturally naturally develop a a grief pattern that is not recognized as a grief pattern Mm. through the lamentation Mm. that things didn't go the way that they were supposed to go. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the, a great example is you're diagnosed with some sort of lung cancer at age 60 and you're given mm-hmm. six months to live. Mm-hmm. How much pain that causes a person because they're thinking back like, oh, I have so many other things I want to get done as if mm-hmm. they had some vote as to whether or not like would they have been any less satisfied with life if it happened or more satisfied 10, 20 years later. Mm-hmm. This, that's where the idea of the bucket list comes into play. And mm-hmm. You know, like, I got to do all these things to get my checklist done. Mm. The point being that in birth, in death, and everything in between, there is no book of supposed to or a book of shoulds or should nots. Mm. There is just being. And we've mm-hmm. really, really, I think, been afraid to just be. There's always mm-hmm. something new around the corner. And in birth, especially, this plays out. In other words, I, you, you know, I should have a healthy baby. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry, but there's that was never guaranteed to you. Mm-hmm. So if we're operating out of this unwritten book that's sitting, you know, somewhere that nobody's ever seen, this book of shoulds, which is really mm-hmm. mother culture kind of impressing herself upon us, it leads to quite a bit of dismay and despair mm-hmm. yeah. around things that are completely out of our control. And that's not supposed to be nihilistic or fatalistic. It's just the sense, the state of being pregnant, the state of giving birth, the beingness of a birthing person carries no guarantees. It, can, it doesn't even really carry, I think, appropriately any expectations. It's a part of just this thing that we go through. But when you're working with people, I assume mm-hmm. that you're sort of unpacking all of this baggage, these conditions that we've placed on life and these guarantees that were never guaranteed, but we work, we act as if, mm-hmm. as if, you know, we, we've assumed these guarantees f- from mm-hmm. mother culture. That was a diatribe. 
I'll pause. I'm just curious what you think. <laughs> I'll just pass the know, ball like, back where, to you. I'm We're like, just. Where uh, did we go? Uh oh. Somebody put something in my water. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now we think we can philosophize about everything. No. Yeah, I just saw this post on uh, thanks with uh, a Thanksgiving post and uh, on on Instagram, and it was like one of those old illustrated, you know, the '50s housewife preparing a turkey. She's like, this year I'm coding the turkey in LSD. Let's now let's see who has their shit together and. <laughs> <laughs> it kind of came to mind there, but um, anyways, oh, funny. where do we go well, next? Some, yeah. A few things came up and I know maybe we're running out of time here, but I'm thinking of a client that, you know, who had a, a traumatic spontaneous loss in which her, you know, baby died at full term. And she's a very deep human. And the thing that is hardest to be with grief in the dominant culture, in the worldview that dominates our culture, where we don't know how to accept what is, we want to make it wrong, or we want to, you know, we want Mm. to make it different, is that she feels so alienated. Yeah. So when she's in a space where death is part of the cycle of life that there is no right or wrong that you know the the way in which this all unfolded was exactly the way in which it 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 unfolded and there's just like a a presence with being with reality yeah without the noise of what the mind might be imposing upon it both internally and culturally when you strip the noise away and you're just present to grief, which is an appropriate response to that loss. Right. It opens the doorway to the heart. And it it is, in my opinion, a psychedelic, hmm. you know, doorway catalyst. There is like a softening that can happen. And, you know, for this mom, there's just a being present with that the fullness of that experience and it is so profound and so deep and then creeping in right is this overculture <laughs> and all the ways in which we are to make her experience wrong yeah which then had this happened what if had that happened what if and that's what drives us crazy so whether it's an extreme situation where there's a mom who's experiencing that loss, or whether it's the mom who's experiencing her birth as having been traumatic and not at all what they had planned for. What they're wrestling with is both the experience itself and how that's being embedded into their whole system, body system, heart system, mind system, spiritual system. But then they're also having to sift through all of that cultural imprinting that's coming on them, yeah. all of that messaging, which is kind of coming back to social media, where I think it, social media just makes it that much harder because it's just bombarding you. Yeah. And you can turn the channel. You can be like, well, I'm going to go down this path and only get <laughs> this kind of whoops information that supports me, right? It's like yeah. so you can you can really dial and tune in or tune out but it's just if we can just be present to the experience without needing to label it as good or bad right or wrong should be or shouldn't be 
then we can actually come to this place of expanded acceptance mm. and mm-hmm. peace. And that's why I think it doesn't matter what the birth, how the birth unfolded. Yeah. I mean, it matters. I'm not saying this lightly, but meaning in the greater scheme of things, that whole experience was an initiation and you get to decide if you're going to do the integration work or not. Right, right. And not everybody wants to and not everybody's ready to. So you said, maybe I help people peel all this back. It depends. Yeah, yeah. I love it. I, I feel like I could go so many more directions, but I know that we're already running out of time. Well, are you are you currently taking clients, Jennifer? Are you pretty booked? Yeah, I, yes and no. <laughs> <laughs> so I do, I have a team and I'm working more towards edging myself out of the one-on-one space and building up some training programs for therapists all over who could be trained in this paradigm. Yeah. Um, so that's kind of where I'm putting more of my energy these days, but I do work with a handful of, cli- of clients weekly. And then the challenge is, is because I'm Canadian, I have to wear two different hats. So if I have clients from the States that have to wear a coaching hat and that coach, then Oh yeah. Through. Cause you're not licensed in the States. Yeah. What a bunch yeah. of baloney, but anyways, yeah. anyways. <laughs> that's my opinion. <laughs> so, so there's that going on, but um, yeah, so we are collectively taking clients and I'm also kind of speaking more about these ideas on another platform that is less just about birth, but more about healing in general. So there's that as yeah. well. Yeah. I think before we close, I think I want to kind of, one of the things when we work with trauma is you want to go down and under and up and out. And I think we went down and under. And yeah. and so I think I want to just take a moment, if I can, to to bring us up and out. Yeah. Does that feel okay? Let's do it. And so, so what I want to do is maybe talk a little bit about what I'm calling the therapy map and how I have over the years kind of put together a an approach that can work with some of these challenges that come forward. And so, you know, one of the ways of getting up and out is actually moving into our head and having a cognitive conversation about something that maybe isn't so emotionally heavy. But, you know, what I want to say is that our system, I believe, and when I say our system, again, I mean our body nervous system, but I also mean our heart system, mind system, soul system, so our, our system is designed to thrive and it's designed to heal. Yeah. I truly believe that to be factual based on our understanding of the nervous system itself. We have a thriving system that is encoded, that is part of our biology. Yeah. So this kind of anchors me, you know, I always say we need something to anchor in. Where are we going? Where are we going? Why are we going there? Why are we doing this hard work? You know, trauma destabilizes us. Trauma blasts us open. Trauma guts us. Trauma disconnects us. Trauma fractures parts from, you know, ourself. Um, Trauma is horrifying on many levels and we can Mm. heal. And healing is incredible. It's an incredible opportunity because it actually not only restores, but it transforms. And in those spaces, we become a better human being. 
Yeah. We become a more loving human being. We become more deeply connected. We feel like we have more meaning. There's more purpose. There's more reason to choose to be alive. So I see healing from trauma as an opportunity, even though it is so goddamn terrifying Mm -hmm. and it is so fucking hard Mm -hmm. and it takes an enormous amount of energy and resources, not just financial. I'm talking personal, energetically, mentally, right? Like you need to be committed to that process. But if we understand and know, and this is kind of what has kept me going is that not only seeing people come through to that other side and myself as well, but that we are not supposed to stay in survival stress. We are not supposed to remain in traumatic stress. That is not what our physiology is intended to do. Yeah. We know it's destructive. And so if that's the case, then the whole purpose is to actually find our way out of it. Right. And in finding our way out of it, then we evolve as a species. And so I believe our work, like, you know, I believe we're born into trauma land and I kind of talk about that. But anyways, I believe the work we have right now in front of us as a human is that we have this opportunity to know so much now that it's accessible within us to actually heal. Yeah. Not just get by. And so I've developed a therapy map that's full intention is to kind of bring us through that integration process where we close with, sorry, there's loud in the background, with this celebration piece, which is really the meaning making piece. And it's really stepping into the wisdom, really going from that wounded place to that wise place. And that everybody gets to carry that unique, what I call your medicine bundle, you carry it with you. And it's how you orient in the world. Beautiful. I want to take a little tiny word. It was beautiful. But I want to unpack something real quickly. Meaning making mm. causes a lot of distress for people. Oh. Uh, because let's say that your baby dies. You have a mm. stillbirth. Mm. What the fuck meaning can I make out of this? What are you talking about? I should be mm. grateful. What mm. Spirit has another plan. There's a soul contract. Mm. Fuck you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What, do you, what say you about that? Yeah, I mean, so that's that's the external imposing what that meaning should be, right? And of course, you you know, that would be rejected and you should rightfully reject it. And so I think what I mean by meaning making is that our, you know, from what I understand, our brain is, you know, a meaning making organ. Yeah. A sense making organ. Right. So part of being in trauma is that we can't understand it. We can't make sense out of it. And so part of the healing is starting to weave that together and make sense out of something. And then from there in time, right, somebody could step into this place of meaning where in that hardship, in that horror, in that profound grief, in the walking with the grief, in the coming through of that, there's a story. Mm-hmm. And that story, because we're storied species, in that story, we're weaving together the meaning. Yeah. That's how I understand it to be. And that it should never be rushed. Mm. And you're not going to understand the meaning 
immediately after. Yeah, like yeah, that yeah. that's ridiculous. Like let's just drop that. But this could be the catalyst that brings you to your knees. And now all of a sudden you have a life of devotion in a way that you never imagined possible. Whatever that means. I'm not talking just religiously devoted. It could be some kind of devotion yeah. to something that is more than just our unique individual ego centric yeah. world. Amazing. Well, thank you, Jennifer. You've uh, you were a real gift. I literally could just sit here and absorb and I want to get back in touch with you and continue to mm. share and grow because uh, I've missed you. I've really, really enjoyed our time just spitting mm. philosophical because I do <laughs> think that we're, we're lacking in medical, the sort of philosophical realm within mm. medicine. And I know medicine is very protective of the word medicine, but I think mm. if we could just open up our minds and hearts in medicine to the possibilities of these other things that you're describing. This is definitely the purview of medicine. Hmm. And um, I've just very, very much enjoyed this conversation and every every time that we've connected. So hmm. thank you. I, I Like I said, I could just listen to you forever. So maybe we'll just have to do a part two when we, when we get around to it at some point. Yeah, I would love to talk about, I would love to chat with you about how I'm framing this idea of stepping out of our survival stress into this thriving state. Right even in the midst of chaos. Yeah. Like I'm really loving what's coming through and it's still being embodied. And I think, sure. it would, I think you would like we'll do a part it. Two. I, I hope this made sense. Sometimes I, I'm like, I don't know what we just talked about. <laughs> I don't either, but that's like, we're in a flow state when we get to chatting and I, that's the most beautiful type of conversation in my opinion. So, so thank you for going there and just letting it rip as always. How can people find you if they wanted to connect and learn more about your work? You do have a couple books too. So let's make sure we plug those. Sure. Yeah. So my first book I wrote was healing after birth, which is kind of all of this. And then the second book is called midwifery for the soul, which is more of my kind of memoir philosophy, some prose and poetry in there as well. Um, and and then you can find us at therapyformoms.ca. If you're looking to do more of that deeper spiritual work, you can go to flowingfears.com. And then if you're a birth worker and you want to kind of dig into the nervous system informed birth care stuff, you can go to nsidulatraining.com. Amazing. I'm putting together a course as well. I wouldn't call it a childbirth education course, mm. but it's it's way beyond that. It's about sovereignty, autonomy, informed Ooh. consent, bioethics, but then all the childbirth education stuff as well oh, wow. with a friend of mine, Sarah Rosser. Amazing. Maybe we'll, well do maybe an interview with you to, to talk about it. Connect with you about even including that in some of the perinatal mental health training stuff that I'm putting together. Yeah. Bigger, bigger course price points way more than a typical childbirth education course, but mm -hmm. we can certainly talk about that. And I'd love to even mm -hmm. include you and interview mm -hmm. with you in the course. So we'll, we'll connect on that. Amazing. Thank you so much, Jennifer. We'll send people your way. And thanks, Nathan. I hope that we stay in touch. I'd love that. It was great. Thank you so much for tuning in. Another amazing episode of the Holistic of a Joanne podcast. Under wraps, if you want to find me, Nathan Riley, I'm the host. I am an MD. I'm a fellow of ACOG, meaning I'm a board-certified OB-GYN. I'm also a board-certified hospice and palliative care physician. You can find all of my services and products at BelovedHolistics.com, including an online shop with discount codes for all of 
the brands that are at the top of their category from water and hydration to supplements to um, courses. I mean, there's so much there. So go check that out. I also offer private consultation. You can buy packages. I'm also, um, of course, the PRP Fertility Program is open to all comers. You can find all of that at BelovedHolistics.com. If you're a midwife and you need collaboration from a physician, I got you. Go to Beloved Holistics. You'll find everything there. If you guys are enjoying the podcast, please support the sponsors. If you haven't left a five-star review, please go do that. It really, really means a lot. And lastly, if something in this episode touched you, share it with somebody that you know. I'm sure that they're going to love it too. We'll see you next week right back here on the Holistic Obituary Podcast. Take care and do no harm. Take no shit. Bye-bye, everybody.